Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements author in the room conference call. My name is Donna, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, you may go ahead. Thank you very much. Greetings, everybody. Glad to have you with us today on this Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. As Donna stated, my name is uh, Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. And we're delighted that you can join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designated to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can be used to improve clinical uh, and patient care. We're excited about today's author. Uh, but before we get to that, I uh, just want to remind you that Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with our next call being on July 18th. Uh, at this time, the article will be Folic Acid for the Prevention of Colorectal Adenomas, and that is uh, in today's JAMA, June 20th, 2007, uh, if you're interested in joining us uh, next month's call and we hope you do. Uh, today, our featured author is Dr. Steven Steinhubel, uh, whose article, Aspirin Dose for the Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease, a Systemic Review, Systematic Review, uh, was published in JAMA on May 9, 2007, and we're delighted to have uh, Steven here with us. Dr. Steinhubel is the Associate Professor of Medicine and the Director of Cardiovascular Education and Clinical Research at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. He attended medical school at, uh, I'm sorry, at uh, St. Louis University uh, and did his internal medicine residency at David Grant Medical Center at the Travis Air Force Base in California. He subsequently practiced at the Elmendorf Air Force Base in, uh, in Anchorage and went on to do a cardiology fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, Dr. Steinhubel's research activities cover a broad range of topics in cardiology, including the primary focus of antithrombotic uh, therapies for acute coronary syndromes. He is a principal investigator for the CREDO trial and the GOLD trial and uh, participates in several other trials, including the Steeple trial, the Acuity trial, the Stradivarius synergy, and event trials, and many more. So if we get done talking about uh, aspirin in today's call, we can always go on to talk about how we develop acronyms <laughs> to, uh, to name cardiology clinical trials. He's an expert in that as well. Uh, Stephen, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's a real um, pleasure. And, and I wish I could take credit for that naming, but I think there are many other people much better than me. Some wonderful naming. Um, as the moderator of the call, it's my job to help us focus on the application of Dr. Steinhubel's research uh, into the clinical world with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. Uh, the purpose of Author in the Room is to put you in direct contact with the author so we can discuss the research findings and really talk about how we use them to improve clinical care. So together, Dr. Steinhubel and I will help you to translate today's papers into those changes applicable in your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Steinhubel will spend about 10 minutes summarizing the article and contextualizing it for us. 
uh, I'll just take a few more minutes after that uh, to draw out some of the implications for real-world world practice. Uh, and then we'll go on to a Q&A session. And so if you can start capturing your questions now and be ready, uh, we'll take your questions as soon as we're done with that, which generally be in about uh, 15 to 20 minutes. I do want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. It's great to both get your questions, but also to get some of your uh, um, uh, experiences and how you've dealt with this particular uh, topic in the clinical setting in which you're engaged. Uh, so please uh, be ready to write down your calls, or, uh, your questions. There are approximately 100 people signed into the call today and uh, several people on each uh, line. Uh, and some members of the media may be present on today's call, but on a background basis only, just uh, for your awareness. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming video or streaming audio or podcasts. You can get them there and on both the IHI and GMO websites. Uh, so let's get started. Again, uh, Dr. Steinhubel, welcome. Good. Thanks, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be here and, and talk about something that I think you know, everybody in the call is familiar with and and, um, and we've been exposed to aspirin since we were children and and um, all feel very comfortable with it. So there's part of it that seems like, gee, why is this really important? And I think that is kind of what makes the um, the paper was so interesting and important for us, um, myself and our co-authors, to get it out there is because we are so comfortable with it that really understanding what the most efficacious doses um, can have a huge impact because so many people use the drug and as we said in the article in the US where you have a rough estimate of the numbers, it's a little bit over 50 million patients, um, presumably will, or we assume will take aspirin every day for cardiovascular disease prevention. Um, just overall, if you look at the whole population and then depending on the risk. And, and aspirin just shares a fascinating history. And, and for me, I, it just, uh, I always enjoy understanding how we got to where we are. And uh, I, I, aspirin was the very first pharmaceutical agent ever developed. It wasn't developed as an antiplatelet agent, obviously. It was developed as an anti, um, as a pain reliever, as an analgesic, as an anti-inflammatory for fevers. And, and the, the size that we refer to as a full-dose aspirin or an adult strength aspirin, was totally made up. It happened to be um, the amount of acetosalicylic acid that um, was able to be stamped into a pill form because the the um, when aceto when Bayer aspirin was first sold, it was sold as a powder, and people started counterfeiting it and undercutting them, and they didn't like that, so they said, "Well, let's do a pill that we can put our stamp on it." And then that's it was five grains or 325, and and then decades and decades later, and with some very astute clinicians observing increased bleeding and saying, "Hey, if thrombi cause heart attacks," which was kind of a stretch even um, when that was first discussed in the 1940s and 50s, maybe something that causes bleeding will help prevent those episodes. And that led to another several decades of research, finally led to the clinical trials and, and got us to the beginning of where we are today. And, and aspirin, whenever we talk about all these new antiplatelet agents that are available, aspirin is still always kind of thrown in the corner as a weak antiplatelet agent. And, and in a test tube, it certainly is. And I'm, I'm convinced if, if today somebody was going to invent aspirin and it didn't exist, it would never make it out of the lab because we do, do our standard battery of testing of antiplatelet agents and people go, ah, no, this is too weak. It's not, not effective. And the fact that, for instance, in the setting of an ST segment elevation MI, an acute MI decreases mortality by 25%, the same as giving a thrombolytic therapy, um, that in non-ST segment elevation MI decreases death in MI by 50%. 
we have almost no therapies that are that effective. So it, it's certainly a, an amazing drug. Um, but the trade-off is with so many people using it, even as, as, as comfortable as we all are and all of us have taken aspirin, obviously, at some time, um, that it, it still carries some risk, just like every other drug. And, and just by the sheer volume of um, patients that use it, um, that can be significant. And, and in fact, in, in the studies that have looked at causes for hospitalizations due to adverse drug reactions, cardiovascular doses of aspirin are almost always on, on, on top. So anything that can, we can balance the efficacy with the safety would be a, a huge plus. Well, it, and we think, and, and it would say 99% sure, but don't know 100% for sure, that the efficacy of aspirin is due to its inhibition of platelet thromboxane production. Um, if that's the case, most of the data tells us that the maximal inhibition occurs at 30 to 50 milligrams a day, and, and no more is needed than that. Now, you already the, down, the major downside of aspirin and increasing dose of aspirin is gastric toxicity. Well, even at 30 to 50 milligrams a day, you're already inhibiting, in, in a limited number of studies, about 50 to 70% of gastroprotective prostacyclins. But as you increase the dose, you, you inhibit more and more and more, and it isn't until you get to 1,300 milligrams a day that you maximally inhibit gastric prostacyclins. So you do have a little bit of a therapeutic window. And, I, and I, what we tried to do in our article was instead of looking at a lot of in vitro testing and things, but focus on the clinical data. And, and the, the summary that uh, we tried to show is that when there, there's really no trial that's ever compared one dose of aspirin against another that is suggested that the higher dose, uh, that is found that the higher dose is better. And in fact, the vast majority of trials have always shown the trend favoring the lower dose. Um, on the other hand, every trial that's looked at it with increasing doses of aspirin has shown increased bleeding. Many of the trials are small. Um, most of the trials, in particular on the efficacy standpoint, are, um, are observational, and so there's a lot of caveats as to um, why patients got, maybe patients got higher dose, were more likely to get an interventional procedure, and there are things we don't know from those trials. But either way, we know that both mechanistically, um, observationally, and through the limited randomized trials, that always with increasing doses of aspirin, there is more bleeding. Um, how big that difference is between 75 a day or 81 a day and 325 a day, we truly don't know. And it may be very so small that it's insignificant, but we tend not to think not. But even if it's just a very small difference, we know from an efficacy standpoint, there's absolutely no evidence to even suggest that using a higher dose in anybody is more effective. Now, and I should emphasize as I'm saying that, I'm talking about cardiovascular disease prevention. About a week or so after our paper came out, in Lancet, a paper came out of the best dose for um, um, colorectal cancer prote um, protection, which, of course, recommended higher doses of aspirin just to um, make sure that nothing is ever as straightforward as you'd like it to be. So that's kind of the overview of, of our article and, and our, our main uh, points we were trying to make. Fantastic. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Uh, that'll leave a lot of... Uh, time for discussion, and it is interesting just to think about the history of aspirin as the first real medication that was developed, and we might uh, want, might want to get into some of that. So uh, in the Lancet article, which I have not seen, that study was done with 325 milligrams? Well, um, so there, there were actually, they pooled uh, two different trials. 
And um, the physician's health study, which was 500 um, milligrams a day, and then the UK TIA trial. And what was interesting in this is that both of the, what, what the investigators had is very long-term follow-up, about the 10 years. And so what they were identifying is one of the aspects that um, you needed the high doses to see the benefit because in, in multiple other trials that benefit hasn't been shown, but the follow-up was just several years, not out to 10 years. And, and they suggested because it was only seen with the higher doses in these arms that you need the higher dose. And that may make sense. It, 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 there's a lot of things. It's, as much as we know about aspirin, there's a ton we don't know, and it, it may be a completely different mechanism where it's beneficial. Uh, for that, and, and in fact, why non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or even COX-2 inhibitors were initially being studied for helping uh, prevent uh, progression of um, uh, colon adenomas. Right, good. So, Steve, just to get the uh, just to get some of the data straight, if we use if we were to use, I guess, in the current situation where we where, where we use a mix of 325 milligrams as opposed to 81 milligrams, what is the estimate for how many excess major bleeding episodes occur? It's a great question, and, and, and I need to um, add the caveat that this is very spe um, speculative. So sure. it's based on observational data, which is all we have, and really trying to compare the harm associated with the higher dose than a lower dose. So with that qualifier, there are two ways you can look at it. You can say if every American in um, taking aspirin for cardiovascular disease prevention every day took 325 milligrams instead of 81 milligrams, that would translate into roughly 1 million excess of bleeds every year in the United States, uh, major bleeding events that require hospitalization. And another way to look at it would be um, if you if you look at the real world data as best as we have it, that suggests that um, in if you look at those individuals taking aspirin for cardiovascular disease prevention, about it appears that about 55 to 60 percent already taken 81 milligram of aspirin a day. The remain most of the remainder taking 325 milligrams a day. If you just converted those patients over. Um, to taking 81 milligrams a day, again, very speculative view, could translate into about half a million um, less patients um, having a major bleeding um, event in a one-year period of time. Quite a bit, quite a bit of yeah. cost embedded. And, and well. certainly globally, um, and we, we're, we looked for and we're unable to find any global aspirin use numbers, but um, it, it's huge, and especially when you look at large healthcare systems, as you pointed out, I used to be in the military healthcare system, um, and um, I remember several times we had very little discussion about switching from 325 enteric-coated to 81 non-coated and, th and things like that, that really, you know, for large groups in particular, and all our patients, it probably has some pretty significant implications. Sure, yeah, impressively. So yeah. before we move to calls from uh, from the audience, let's just talk quickly about indications, which you and I chatted a little bit about uh, when we were preparing. There is the confusion now about when we should start women on uh, sort of prophylactic aspirin at what age, uh, given the higher risk of menstrual bleeding if they're started at a younger age, and there's still right. even some controversy as to when we should start men on prophylactic action, uh, aspirin. Do you want to address that? Yeah, the, the challenge um, is uh, obviously the guidelines and the like are written for populations, and, and most of us are not treating populations, we're treating the individual patient. The, the data um, for prevention, especially in women, and, and from the Women's Health Study, um, were strongest overall for cardiovascular disease prevention in, um, so cardiovascular death, 
stroke and myocardial infarction only in about the 10% of the population in this very large study of long-term follow-up um, who was 65 and older. And that's led to the strongest recommendation for 65 and older. Now, is a woman at 64 and a half really a whole lot different than she would be six months later where aspirin's not beneficial at that? Uh, not really. Um, and, and, and for men, the cutoff seems more at 50. Um, where the risk, but every person's different. So a, a smoker with diabetes who's, who's 45 is going to be at higher risk than a 60-year-old non-smoker, non-diabetic, non-hypertensive patient. And, and then similarly, uh, if an in, um, individual has a history of poorly controlled hypertension, they may also be at higher risk for bleeding. So um, it, the, uh, the easiest answer is the clear answer. Secondary prevention, absolutely everybody. Known cardiovascular disease should get a, a daily aspirin, and again, we feel very strongly should be no more than 81 milligrams of, of aspirin a day uh, for that. The primary prevention becomes the sticky area, and, and in fact, the FDA hasn't even approved aspirin for primary prevention based on kind of all the... Um, the, um, the grayness in, in, um, in their interpretation of the data, whereas several prevention task force have, have strongly recommended a daily aspirin. Um, so it, it, the best way to do it is always balancing the risk and the benefits, and we often use the Framingham risk score as, um, as the best marker for the risk. Um, I'm sorry, for the benefits, and so that the higher the risk of an individual, and we typically more than moderate risk, um, in the 2% per year range of a cardiovascular event um, and, and those patients um, benefiting from the aspirin. On the other hand, the downside might be if a patient has a history of stomach ulcer problems or GI bleeding issues, that is a strong predictor for having GI bleeding problems with aspirin. Now, you can usually uh, counteract that with um, using a proton pump inhibitor at the same time, but that obviously adds a lot of cost to your preventative strategy. All right, so guidelines in terms of men differ between starting at about age 40 to somewhere about age 50? Yeah, about age 50 are the strongest recommendations, right. and yep. then for women, age 65. Yep, okay. And so uh, the thing that we're not going to talk about, well, we may, we may, we may hit on it, is uh, in what situations is a higher dose of aspirin indicated, atrial fibrillation and things along those lines? Yeah, and and the the fair answer with the caveats about the cancer prevention, which I think are are much more speculative and, and um, unknown, is that there's essentially no data that would suggest there's any situation where a higher dose is more beneficial. And and the one area, the caveat to that, from a cardiovascular disease standpoint, um, for me, is in atrial fibrillation. Um, aspirin also acetylates fibrinogen uh, more than just thromboxane, and that may have an anticoagulant effect that makes it a little bit more effective. Um, there has been one, tri uh, one trial, and certainly not conclusive, that would suggest that the 325 is more effective than 75 or 81 milligrams of aspirin or maybe even 162 milligrams. So in my patients, who I try to minimize those patients who take just aspirin um, for um, uh, stroke prophylaxis and atrial fibrillation, those are the one patient group where I'll typically still stick with 325 milligrams. Great. Well, I think it's time to, you and I could go on talking for a long time, just like we did previously. I, I find this stuff fascinating. But let's uh, open up the line now to callers. So your questions or experiences in this regard would be useful for everybody on the call. Please feel free to share. And I will pass it back to Donna. 
Thank you. If you do have a question or a comment, press 0, then 1 on your touchtone phone, and this will place you into queue. And one okay. by one, the lines will be open so that you may each ask your question. So again, that's 0, 1 on your touchtone phone. Now, if your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you can press the 0 and then the 2 key. And I will announce you by first name only, and if you would like to introduce yourself further, please do so. Again, that's 01 on your touchtone phone. Now, Chuck, there are no questions in queue at this time. Okay, we'll ask people to think of something. And uh, we have had calls where we've gone the whole the whole hour with just uh, the author and I chatting, which is which is okay. We can do that, but I know that there's probably a lot of questions out there about about uh, the use of aspirin, and so uh, if you have a call or a question or comment, please do hit those right. numbers, and we'll be glad to hear from you. All right. We have just had some come into queue. Okay. All right. This first question comes from Marlon's location. Your line is now open. Okay. Uh, what? Um, if, you, if you could just give us your name and your institution, that would be great. Right. This is uh, Marlon Matson, and uh, I'm at Wild Cornell Medical College. Uh, what impact uh, uh, do we know about enteric-coated uh, uh, enteric aspirin versus non-coated aspirin? Yeah, that's a really great question. So there, there's two parts uh, question to that. So one would be the safety issue. And there have been several, uh, you know, uh, and I should qualify everything. Mostly everything is small. We haven't had the large-scale clinical trials in enteric coating. But in the... Um, it, um, endoscop small endoscopic studies have all showed that enteric coating or buffered uh, preparations of aspirin have absolutely no effect on, um, on stomach ulcers and erosions, which makes sense because we think that's systemic inhibition of, of gastric prostacyclin that has that impact. Um, we, I think that most people who buy the enteric coating believe that that is um, the major benefit to make it more stomach uh, safe. Now, there are a small percentage of patients, and I bet I've had, in, if I had to guess in my population, I've cared for single digits certainly, and maybe in the 1% to 2%, who when they actually swallow the aspirin pill, they can feel it, and it burns when they, when they, right when they swallow it or as it's going down. And in those patients, those are the patients who really benefit from an enteric coating, but it's not protective from, um, there's no data to suggest it's protected from, um, um, for uh, gastric erosions and ulcers. Then the second part of the question is where it may have a negative impact is not all, all enteric coated aspirins are the same. And now this is very speculative, but there have been several very good trials that have looked at different enteric-coated preparations and looked at their platelet thromboxane um, inhibition. And although they all achieve high levels of inhibition of, of serum thromboxane, they are significantly different from each other, <coughs> excuse me, and, and particularly significantly different from non-coated aspirin. So I'm, um, I recommend to my patients not to use the enteric-coated 81 milligram um, preparation um, because I'm, I'm, and I don't feel strongly about this because I don't think there's, there's great evidence to say either way, but I think there's the potential that they may have less um, absorption of the acetylsalicylic acid with some enteric coatings that would make it less effective. Okay. Fantastic. Good. Next question. All right. Our next question comes from Supriya's location. Your line is now open. Hello, Alan Azeman at Health Canada. Where does aspirin resistance come in, if it comes in at all, into the dose selection? No, that, that's a terrific, terrific question, too, and, and I'll give you a longer answer. So 
about five years ago, I was a huge um, fan of aspirin resistance and really thought it was fascinating. And I think, you, you know, you think there's no other drugs uh, other than antiplatelets that we give the same dose to everybody and assume it, it works in everybody. And it's actually this idea of the aspirin dose that I think is some of the best data to tell us that, it, that at least what we appear to be measuring has nothing to do with it, the clinical efficacy of aspirin. And the reason I say that is that if you look at two of the more common tests in studying um, aspirin responsiveness, um, and they both show a pretty remarkable dose effect. So that, um, and in fact, with um, um, some devices showing about 50% of patients being aspirin non-responders or resistant when they get 81 milligrams a day, and 0% to 10% being aspirin responders when they get 325 milligrams a day. I, without the clear clinical data to tell us, but if you look, as I mentioned, all of the clinical data or the strongest portion of it shows that the, the greatest efficacy tends to be in the lower dose aspirin group. So there's not even a trend favoring the higher dose. And, and you would assume, let's say, 10% of the population gets, um, it, it has a, if 10% of the population was resistant to lower doses of aspirin required a higher dose, then you'd ex expect at the very least that the trend would favor the higher dose of aspirin. And the fact that that's never been found and, and, and shown, it makes me very um, uh, cautious about um, extrapolating what this clear variability that we see with um, response with these point-of-care aggregation tests and the clinical efficacy of aspirin. And in fact, as we've delved into it, there was a, a study, uh, I unfortunately can't remember where um, the, the institution from Japan, that looked at the variability in, in response to aggregation and then closely measured thromboxane inhibition and found that the inhibition of thromboxane only accounted for about 9% of the variability in response to um, aggregation tests. And, and so I think there's a lot of things still going on that we don't understand. So the, the, the bottom line is for me right now, I don't, um, I don't clinically test for aspirin resistance. We're involved in several trials that is looking at that using different devices. Um, but right now, I think that the majority of the data don't support the idea of any dose dependence of aspirin resistance. Uh, Steve, as we talked about um, uh, previously, there are a lot of devices on the marketplace now to try to test for this. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so. Um, platelet aggregation um, was developed and is considered the historical gold standard. It was developed in the early 1960s in a method uh, by um, Born. And, um, it, you know, it was not designed to look at the effects of antiplatelet therapies, though Dr. Born would, would be the first to say that that's probably one of the greatest uh, benefits of it is being able to identify agents that inhibit platelets. But um, platelet aggregation is a very artificial environment. So, um, most of the, uh, well, that's not fair to say, but some of the platelet care, um, point of care devices, so the Verify Now, as an example, is designed to mimic to be a much simpler point of care way to look at aggregation. And it, and it definitely shows a very nice uh, response in somebody if you measure platelet um, function before and after aspirin and suggests that there are patients who are non-responsive. And, and that may end up being clinically important. We just don't, don't know that yet and then don't know what to do with those patients. 
um, you know, bleeding time has been a standard test that's been around for over 100 years, but interestingly, bleeding time has never been shown to correlate with either thrombotic events or bleeding events, even in a surgical setting where it's used most often. The PFA100 is designed to be somewhat of an um, ex vivo or in vitro form of a bleeding time. And, and has also shown um, variability in, in response to doses that don't seem to be consistent with the clinical data and, um, and um, have, you know, several studies that have shown a lack of correlation with non-responders doing no worse um, than responders to aspirin with a long-term follow-up. Um, so, and, and then there are the urinary thromboxane test is, is also um, used as a test for aspirin responsiveness, but the problem is we know that there are, are many disease states that influence um, the amount of thromboxane our body produces. The platelets are not the only cells that do it. And, and in fact, one of the best um, correlates is um, inflammation, and another correlate is the degree of atherosclerotic disease. So in the studies that have shown a nice correlation with urinary thromboxane and long-term outcomes um, may just be telling us that the more atherosclerosis you have, the more likely you are to have more events and be telling us very little about um, aspirin. Would you, would you alter therapy at all based on things like high sensitivity C-reactive protein? Um, not aspirin doses, so the, um, um, I, I'll, I'll alternate. Uh, uh, that'll help me make decisions on statins or how aggressive I am with statins. Sure. But in terms of, of aspirin, really to get anti-inflammatory doses of aspirin, um, you need doses of over a gram a day. And um, I think it would be interesting to, to see um, uh, how something like that would do and maybe what the trade-offs are, but I, I don't um, change antiplatelet therapy based on that. Right. Now, you know, in your article, you mentioned that uh, doses as low as 30 milligrams a day of aspirin uh, uh, come close to achieving the full platelet you know, inhibition. Uh, inhibition. Right. Um, is anybody going to produce a 30 milligram tablet? Not that I know of, and, and it's interesting because it has been uh, studied, and, and so the Dutch TAA trial, and, and uh, I'm a cardiologist, and so I should say, you know, we tend to kind of sometimes ignore neurology trials, and neurologists tend to ignore cardiology trials, but the, but the endpoints are always the same. They're always death, MI, and stroke are typically the same. And um, in the Dutch TAA trial, uh, with several thousand patients with several years of follow-up, they randomized patients after a TIA or minor stroke to 30 milligrams a day or 283 milligrams a day of aspirin. And um, consistent with everything else we've seen, showed no difference in outcomes in terms of thrombotic events. And again, the trend favoring the 30 milligram dose and, and showed a, only a trend, um, but a, 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 a not a small difference in terms of bleeding effects in favoring the 30 milligram dose. Interesting. So we've been we've been telling people for a long time to break a regular aspirin in half. I guess we could tell them to take to break a 81 milligram aspirin in half and I, I, get I, the same effect. I, I, the data would suggest that we can do that, and, and it, the antithrombotic trialist collaboration did a very nice, you know, combined analysis looking at all the uh, placebo-controlled trials of aspirin, and um, there were very few trials in the less than 75 milligrams a day, so the relative risk reduction in that group was less than the others, but with very wide confidence intervals. But I think a lot of people, based on that, kind of say, well, I'm not, um, it, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to stick with something in the 75 to 81. Sure. Sure. And, and, you know, the, uh, it would be 
again, the, the numbers are small in the data, but it would be uh, it doesn't seem like there would be a whole lot of difference in terms of gastric prostacyclin uh, protection using 30 milligrams and 75 milligrams a day. Great. Great. Donna? All right. Our next question comes from Norman's location. Your line is now open. Yeah. Hi. This is Norm Charney from the Healthcare for the 21st Century. Uh, how do you manage uh, uh, active elderly people who, as you know, bruise easily and they're always, uh, you know, banging themselves into stuff with, no matter what activities they, they get into? And also, I've had the experience of uh, one person who slipped and fell on the ice, hit his head, and developed an intracerebral bleed. And my second part of my question is, are there any nutraceuticals that will affect platelet aggregation that won't have the uh, side effects that aspirin has? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, um, so one is that aspirin is definitely associated with an increased risk of intracranial um, hemorrhage. And it right. seems very consistent across the doses. And I, I don't want to, I think it's, it's one additional case per 10,000 patient years. Um, and so it's small, but it's not insignificant and, and probably like the patient you highlight is, is going to be the typical example um, of somebody like that. It takes a combination of several bad things to occur be, before that happens. Um, I, I, like you, have patients who frequently have that same problem. Um, for us, again, as a cardiologist, frequently we'll, we'll torture them with uh, Plavix plus aspirin first and um, then they'll come really bruising and stuff, and we'll stop the Plavix, and they'll still have a lot of bruising. And so there's several patients I've switched to every other day aspirin. Now, I should say that with the caveat of I'm not a, I never feel 100% comfortable with that, and I tell the patient that, and, and I say, but I would say that the patients I've done that, almost all of them have felt much better in the sense of that they didn't feel like they bruised as easy. Some patients who had easy bloody noses, especially when I lived in Alaska and people were going out into the, the bone-chilling cold and then coming into the dry heat, um, it, you know, really uh, see, feel a difference. And at least the data that we do have, let's say like uh, the Women's Health Study um, with 100 milligrams every other day, no reason to think that was inadequate antiplatelet dosing, so I feel pretty comfortable even with the 81 milligrams every other day for that. Now, for the nutraceuticals, um, the nutraceuticals suffer, I think, from what um, a lack of the, the large-scale, you know, studies that we have with aspirin. You know, we have um, hundreds of thousands of patients, literally, that have been um, involved in aspirin-related trials, um, and mo many of those placebo-related trials. But now we know fish oils have, have some um, antiplatelet effects would be a great example but have never really been studied as an anti, well, when they've been studied, they haven't shown the antithrombotic effect as much as they show like an antiarrhythmic effect that we can't well understand as well as the triglyceride lowering um, uh, effects. And um, so the short answer is I'm not aware of any nutraceutical that, that we can comfortably say you get the benefit of aspirin without the downside. All right, our next question comes from Charles's location. Your line is now open. Anybody with a question? Donna, which site is that? Hello. There you go. Can you hear me? I'm yes. sorry. This is Charles Walker. I'm calling from VA and Montrose. I just wanted to find out, is there any particular time of the day that a patient should take aspirin and is more effective? And secondly, what happens to someone who is taking some other painkillers? Typical example, over-the-counter um, medication like Tylenol, does yeah. it have any effect on aspirin? Yeah. 
Again, a terrific question. Um, I, I really appreciate it. So the first is I'm not aware of anything that tells us um, the certain and time of day is better. Now we know um, there are several good studies that tell us that your platelets are more activated in the morning. Um, that we know that aspirin preventative therapy seems to blunt what we saw in the early placebo-controlled trials of that early morning effect, but has never been associated with the timing when you have it, and is probably reflective of the um, of the irreversible inhibition of, of the platelet. Um, the the question of of concomitant pain relievers is a huge, uh, uh, I think, underappreciated problem. Now, Tylenol is, is um, acetaminophen is a, a, a great alternative because it absolutely does not affect um, aspirin's ability to inhibit the platelet. Um, COX-2 inhibitors, when they're more uh, available, they also did not um, do that. But the more common things we use, such as uh, naproxen um, or uh, um, um, ibuprofen, have been shown to potentially, well, not potentially, if dosed in the right way, can prevent aspirin from um, achieving its antiplatelet effects. And, and the, it's the pharmacodynamics <coughs> of it is you realize aspirin, in order for aspirin to inhibit the platelet, um, it needs to acetylate um, the, uh, the cyclooxygenase enzyme in the platelet. And when it acetylates it, it inhibits that enzyme for the life of the platelet. Um, it, it, the aspirin has the ability to acetylate the platelet in the, pretty much, if, especially if you chew a dose, it's gone. Um, the, uh, the acetylated form is gone in less than an hour. And so you have a small window of opportunity. If you're taking a Motrin and the ibuprofen is bound, is, is blocking the channel in the cyclooxygenase enzyme so that the aspirin can't acetylate um, the serine residue in the cyclooxygenase, um, the aspirin is, acetylates other proteins in the system, nothing important, and then it's gone. And then by the time the ibuprofen wears off, you have a completely normal platelet with no inhibition at all. And even though ibuprofen gets most of the bad press, there have been studies showing the same thing with naproxen and, um, and uh, suggested there's no reason such as indomethacin should be any different. Um, so what I tell my patients who have to take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory is, is first I ask the patients, and in fact we have one of our really good residents who's doing a study of a questionnaire and asking patients how often they take non-steroidal anti-inflammatories if their doctors know it. But when, when I ask the patients and, and ask them if they do, and what I'll tell them or ask them to do is to take their um, aspirin in the morning um, to chew it, and, and if you chew a baby aspirin, you get its full antiplatelet effect in 15 to 20 minutes after that. Then, as long as they wait that 15 to 20 minutes, let's say a half hour, an hour later when they eat breakfast, something that, that that's when they take their ibuprofen. And that way, now the platelets are acetylated, that the ibuprofen can have its anti-inflammatory effect, and, and everything's good to go. But it takes some coordination and commitment on the time of the patient. The problem is with, with um, naproxen, where it has a much longer half-life, and especially if you're taking it twice a day, there's a good chance that um, your, your platelet will still be inhibited. Now, there's some argument to say, well, you're inhibiting cyclooxygenase and the naproxen, that's probably just as effective as aspirin. And that part may be true, but we also know that, that naproxen also 
um, inhibits gastric prostacyclins to a much, much greater extent um, uh, than aspirin does. And so there may be, the, from a cardiovascular standpoint, even though it inhibits the platelet, it may um, potentially, and, and I should emphasize potentially, have some negative cardiova uh, cardiovascular effects overall because of its inhibition of prosta vascular prostacyclins. Great, really good questions we're getting. Donna? And there are no other questions in queue at this time. Good. Stephen, uh, if we go back to the question, uh, the, the uh, question before the last one about the elderly, uh, I, I'm assuming the answer is going to be it depends. Uh, is there an upper limit at which uh, you would consider aspirin no longer particularly useful in terms of age? Um, not not based on a pure age cutoff. Um, I mean, there are oh, there, you know, I'm sure we all have some familiarity with a patient who has um, a significant enough mobility problems um, where the trade-off and the risk for bleeding, for falling, and having serious hemorrhagic problems outweighs the benefit of the of the aspirin. Um, you know, and that's going to be, you know, I guess that's why doctors won't be replaced by computers anytime soon because it really is individualized. So if the patient is just taking aspirin for primary prevention, let's say you have a 90-year-old who has balance problems and, and vertigo, well, and it's primary prevention, you think, well, you know, the benefit, primary prevention benefit is quite small compared to this patient's, individual patient's risk for falling. On the other hand, if it's a patient who has a drug-eluting stent in their left main, in that patient, they better be taking aspirin for the rest of their life, um, and along with uh, clopidogrel, and, and then you just kind of live with the falling and the bleeding risk and regret that you ever put that drug-eluting stent in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go there. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, so it, it really has to be individualized. So there is no real age cutoff um, where I make that decision. But there right. certainly are patients where I, I've, I've withdrawn the aspirin and just say it's really not worth the risk. Yeah. Uh, the data on when to stop it prior to surgical or dental procedures. Yeah, um, a great question, and again, like many things made up on that. So we, to completely get all the acetylated platelets out of your system takes about 10 days because we turn over about 10% of our platelets every day. Um, if you've been on chronic aspirin, you assume all your platelets are acetylated, so about 10% um, turnover every day. Um, it, most studies suggest to have normal hemostasis, you only need about 20% normal platelet population. So that would suggest that really you only need two days or so off of your aspirin in order to have um, essentially near n normal hemostasis. But there are always caveats to that, and every surgeon is at, or dentist has had uh, different um, interactions where that doesn't work as straightforward as it should. So often it becomes uh, three to five days and a little bit um, uh, kind of the personal experience of the person who has to worry about the bleeding problem. Um, you know, we have that issue a lot in, in, um, in trying to really minimize how long a patient is off aspirin and, and again, in our stent population and patients who have to undergo, let's say, a colonoscopy or some other surgical procedure where um, I understand that the proceduralists would really like them to be off aspirin, but we try to explain to them, especially, again, if it's a drug-eluting stent or a recent stent, that, you know, it's really, really important to, um, to maintain the aspirin in those patients. 
Great. There, uh, there's very good data, you know, that I would argue, and, and again, I'm not a surgeon, and, and so I, I it's um, hesitant to say this until I can do the surgeries myself, but there have been good studies, the PEP trial in particular, that looked at continuing aspirin through the surgical procedure um, in order to prevent DVTs and, and pulmonary emboli, and did show a reduction in those events with a small trade-off in bleeding, mm-hmm. where at least the investigators concluded <laughs> that we're probably too quick to stop aspirin. Mm-hmm. Right. All right, we've had a few more questions come into queue. Great. This next question comes from Marlon. Marlon, your line is now open. Hello, Marlon, you may begin. You might be on mute, Marlon. All right, well, let's go on to the next one. Marlon, if you can press zero one once again to get back into queue, I apologize about that. Um, This next question comes from Rosalie's location. Your line is now open. Yes. Um, my question is, how long after an acute stroke do you continue the 325 milligrams of more of um, aspirin? Um, so after, well, so again, I, I should should qualify. I'm, I'm a cardiologist, and 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 so typically, an acute stroke decisions are are made by somebody else. But um, there is nobody in any clinical situation where I have control of the aspirin dose, other than the very first loading dose, um, where so you assume the patient comes in on absolutely with no acetylated platelets, and it only takes about 100 to 162. But I still have patients chew four baby aspirins, let's say, in the setting of an acute MI. But after that. All you need to acetylate are the additional um, platelets that are produced every day. So that's why it takes a very low dose. So there's almost, in any situation, will I continue a patient on any more than 81 milligrams a day. Now, if they come in with atrial fibrillation, I think they've had an event, um, and then, then that's different like we talked about before. Great. Other questions? All right, let's go back to Marlon. All right, Marlon, your line is now open. Uh, this is Marlon Matson from Wild Cornell again. I understand aspirin may decrease flushing with bedtime niacin use. Yes. Is there any evidence that niacin affects the antiplatelet effect of aspirin? Um, no, so uh, 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 this may just demonstrate my ignorance of it, but I, just recently the, the mechanism of the flushing has been identified of niacin, and, and I believe it's Merck has a, a drug, and it, it's a excuse me, it's a prostaglandin-mediated response. So the niacin is uh, causing the release of, of, um, if my memory is, it's prostaglandin D, and and that is what's giving the flush feeling um, and sensation. So there is going to be a clinical trial, and um, you know, Chuck mentioned how good we are at acronyms, and I know it has a great sexy acronym, but I can't remember what it is, but of of testing the the true uh, effective and flush um, um, resistant or flush-proof uh, niacin preparation. And that will be, I guess, the first answer to see if, if there's any potential for any clinical difference. Uh, Marlon, anything else on that point? No, that's fine. Good. Uh, Nobody has yet asked Steve about the development of acronyms. I, I have come to realize that as a part of a cardiology fellowship, you have to go through a month of a clinical trial naming. It has to be clever. It has to be macho. It can't be any kind of, you know, any. it can't be like calling it Daisy or something like that. It has to be some kind of robust, uh, in, you know, somebody that, it, it, you know, in a wrestling federation threw off the name and then you turn it into a trial name. 
So let me, I'll, I'll give somebody a piece of trivia. I'll give the, our listeners a piece of trivia if they think of other questions that will stick with you that is Aspen related. So we, we know that Aspen was developed at, at uh, Bayer Corporation in Germany in the late 19, uh, I'm sorry, 1800s. And it was developed in, in maybe still today where they're, they're looking at agents and saying, okay, what can we do to modify these to make it different? And they acetylated uh, salicylic acid. And, and that's how I found it. And, and they were on an acetylation kind of kick. And, and the same pharmacist who acetylated aspirin, Felix Hoffman, several weeks later uh, acetylated another drug that became um, a, equally well-known, um, maybe not as um, for the right reasons, um, but um, you, you can impress your family and friends and tell them that this, um, this new agent, um, they acetylated morphine and um, marketed it as a non-addictive cough suppressant that they, um, they gave it to the, some of the workers at Bayer and asked them how it made them felt, and they said it felt like, they felt like heroes, so they named it heroin. And, and so that was in the, in the famous timeline of acetylating um, agents. You got aspirin and heroin within a, a month of each other. <laughs> and heroin got the sexier name. <laughs> right, apparently, yeah. Don, any other questions in the queue? Yes, we have another question from Sapria's location. You may go ahead. Uh, Alan Azeman in Health Canada again. Could you, any idea where the historical basis of the five grain, 324 milligram tablet comes from? Um, it, so the way, um, there are a couple of, surprisingly, and, and this sounds horribly nerdy, but there are two really good books on aspirin. And the first one I read is called The Aspirin Wars, and I apologize, I don't know the author's names, but they're, they're uh, textbooks. And then the most recent one, I think it's just called Aspirin. And, and, um, but both of those go through the history of, both, uh, of that. And, and in Aspirin Wars, they explain that, um, you mentioned that, that um, initially it was sold as one gram of powder. You'd go to the pharmacy, you'd say, I need some salicylic acid or some aspirin, and they would weigh out a gram in a paper bag and you'd send you on your way. And then um, clever pharmacists said, well, this stuff's expensive. I can just cut it with other things or I can counterfeit it and do this. And so Bayer recognized that. And, and so Bayer had the, uh, so at this time there were no pharmaceutical agents sold as pills. And, and Bayer aspirin became the first pharmaceutical agent ever sold as a pill to humans. And when they developed that pill, essentially it became um, what mixed well with cornstarch, um, the binder in the pill, the, the amount that was necessary where they felt that the patients could swallow it, it didn't look too big, and that they were able to put the Bayer cross on the pill. So it was based essentially on, um, on nothing other than, um, um, I, I guess, attractiveness of the um, tablet. Sure, convenience. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. <coughs> Donna, are there, are there any other calls? There are no other questions in queue at this moment. Fantastic. Uh, Steve, any other uh, bits of trivia about Aspen that you want to share with us? Um, well, the, obviously the history, it should go back and, and – uh, and um, using uh, some derivative of salicylic acid um, goes back to a, at least as far a, as recorded medicine. And there, there's the Ebers papyrus, which is considered like the medical textbook of ancient e Egyptology. And it talks about using willow bark, um, and the quote from the, the, the translation of the hieroglyph is to bring bread to the heart. And I have no idea what that means, but it sounds like, you know, if you want to give the Egyptians a lot of credit for understanding it had some effect on the heart, um, but that 
um, that the um, that the, w w that w the salicylic acid are, um, was recognized as having that medicinal characteristics, and then um, um, Hippocrates was known to to recommend that um, Native American Indians in the United States um, for aches and pains used to chew on uh, beaver tails. And it's because the, um, when they eat the willow bark and trees that the salicylic acid apparently really concentrates in their tail. So they're able to get the analgesic effects from that. Um, one of the um, more interesting changes in, in advertising that came from Bayer was um, in, in the 1920s, 1930s, there was no antiplatelet effects, obviously, of aspirin, and, and there was no other analgesics. And so people used to take relatively high doses for treating um, rheumatism and, and the like, and so um, patients would become toxic um, and have salicylism. So there was an advertising campaign in the 30s um, uh, suggest, uh, um, um, being adamantly um, stating that aspirin does not affect the heart. Um, because people would, would um, hyperventilate and get tachycardic, and, and so at the time it was thought to be a direct cardiotoxic um, by at least lay people, and I'm sure some scientists, and so they had to kind of um, have a whole advertising campaign that focused on how it had no impact on the heart, and fortunately they were proven wrong. Uh, any idea how many chews on a beaver tail it takes to get 81 <laughs> No, but it'd be a fascinating study that <laughs> maybe I'd be happy to have our fellows participate in, but not myself. <laughs> With live beavers or not live yeah. beavers. <laughs> That's right. I guess that would uh, make it much harder if it was a live be beaver. <laughs> yeah. Donna, any other questions? No, there are still no questions in queue. Well, it's been a great call. We could probably just end it up a few minutes early. You know, maybe one other thing in terms of performance measurement, uh, you know, lots of uh, standardized measures being promulgated out there. Um, you know, aspirin sort of hits that. Uh, I mean, it's very important for the reasons you state in the, in the magnitude of prevention. Uh, it is also, uh, I think, such a common thing that we don't, we oftentimes don't even know if our patients are taking it or not, whether we recommend it or not. So many people right. are. And sometimes it hits on the standardized measures and sometimes it does not. Uh, any thoughts and, you know, discussions in the cardiology world about standard measures and should we be measuring, you know, uh, uh, the percentage of, of our males over 50 and our females over 65 on aspirin? Yeah, I, I think so, and, and for the reasons you exactly um, state, everybody has a little different commitment to their own health care. And, and the people who are the proponents of, of measuring platelet function in all patients, and, and I, I totally agree with this, is they think one of the better reasons is to um, identify your patients who aren't being totally honest with you when they say, yeah, I'm taking my aspirin every day. Mm -hmm. I mean, there still is, and, and I don't want to overuse the phrase, but it really is a miracle drug. I mean, there are, for the cost effectiveness, there is nothing like it, and there probably never will be. Right. You know, something that costs pennies that can truly save your life. And, um, and, and so there are two ways that, from a cardiologist standpoint, we, we try to, um, you know, ask our patients every time, are you taking aspirin? What dose are you taking? Is it enterocoded? Are you taking any other pain relievers? And then the other thing I always try to tell all of our patients is that if they're, if they're a family member, anybody is sitting at home and they have chest pain and they, even for a second, they wonder if this may be a heart attack, if there's something crosses their mind, but they're saying, oh, it's probably indigestion, it's nothing else. Um, they need to chew two baby aspirins at least, and and, pro and and depending on how they feel, call 911. And most of my patients, unfortunately, are always going to be hes more hesitant to call 911 
and, and that's unfortunate, but if they can chew the two aspirins at least, that could be more effective at saving their life um, than anything else they do is they sit at home and, and hope that their pain goes away with two Tums. Now, i got to tell you, that was, a, that was actually a fantastic just list of bullets that you just stated. Are you taking aspirin? Uh, if so, what dose? Are you taking other pain medications? Uh, is it enterocoded? Uh, and you would encourage them not to take enterocoded. Right. doesn't make a difference. Or if they do, I ask them, I ask them you know, has taking aspirin before bothered your stomach right when you're swallowing it and, and the like? Right, yeah, because it's the esophageal effect. And yeah. then, and then, uh, and then uh, if you happen to be sitting around and somebody's having chest pain, you know, amongst other things you might do, make sure that they choose some aspirin. Absolutely. Yeah. Five great points to keep in mind. All right. Well, we're at the end of the call. Donna, if there's any, if there's not any more calls in the queue, we'll go ahead and end the call. Well, we did just get one more okay, into great. queue. Okay. Well, this last question comes from Kathy's location. Your line is now open. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I'm Kathy Walter from Christus St. Patrick in southwest Louisiana, and it's been a great discussion. But one question I had was on the sex-dependent dosing. Right. Do you advocate uh, different doses in your male and female population? No, um, I don't, um, but to be honest, I, I wonder if that's the right thing. I, I'm, there's a lot of really good um, proteomic studies and ex vivo studies that would suggest there is a gender difference and that we should be considering that. Jeff Berger from Duke did a very nice analysis, too. The, the problem is always with gender differences, and in fact, in all antiplatelets, just not aspirin, of whether it's a, a disease difference, because a lot of times women that will get in the trials that, that kind of lead to these data will have a different uh, underlying process. So when you level the playing field, so let's say in cardiology, it's if you're troponin positive chest pain, women get the exact same benefit as men with the exact same dose of aspirin with clopidogrel 2B3 inhibitors. But if you look at all women coming in of chest pain, it seems like they don't get the same benefit. And so there are those caveats that I'm just not sure, sure of. So that's a long kind of non-answer to say what really, right now I don't, but it, it's an area, Susan Smythe, one of our co-authors, is actively involved in doing different research, and I think there's a lot of reasons to think that um, maybe we should be, if not using different doses of aspirin, maybe at least uh, focusing on different antiplatelets or different pathways. Thank you. Thanks. That sounds like there's a lot more to come in that regard. Oh, antiplatelets, you know, we, we've had aspirin, we've had Plavix um, for, and, and Ticlopidine for decades. Right now there's over half a dozen new antiplatelet agents undergoing phase two or phase three trials. Um, and, and so we're just, I think, right now scratching the surface of our understanding of, of platelets, of antiplatelets, of, of identifying patients who really benefit. For someone like me who really loves studying this stuff and, and as you pointed out, loves coming up with new acronyms for trials, um, it's really kind of an exciting time. Fantastic. Well, I think that's all the time we have for questions. Just as a reminder, the next call is on July 18th, uh, 2 o'clock Eastern time. The article is Folic Acid for the Prevention of Colorectal Adenomas. And for anybody who thinks that might not be the most exciting topic, think about the discussion we had today, which just talked about good old aspirin, plain old aspirin, and it's been a fascinating call. I really appreciate your participation, Stephen. It's been a lot of fun. My pleasure. So please feel free to join us uh, next month. Just as a reminder, this call is sponsored by the Journal of the American Medical Association. We're very thankful to them and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Uh, the author in the room is an interactive conference call des uh, designed to accelerate changes and improve clinical care. Thank you all for being a part of today's author in the room. Good day.